1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to begin reading at verse 20 through the end of verse 24. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church in the city of Corinth during the first century of A.D. And in verse 20, he writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. This is God's word. Now before we pray, what is the second most dangerous country in the world to follow Jesus? A few weeks ago, we asked what is the first most dangerous country in the world to follow Jesus? And the answer is North Korea. What is the second most dangerous country in the world to follow Jesus? Afghanistan. Afghanistan. 34 million people live in Afghanistan. The major religion in Afghanistan is Islam. All Christians in Afghanistan can experience loss of personal property, the loss of their business, and even death at the hands of their own family members and communities. And so as we pray for ourselves to be refreshed and fed by the Word of God, I want to ask you to join me as we pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Father, as we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, We are grateful that we share this living hope with our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. In the midst of a very real oppression, may these devoted followers of Jesus rejoice today that because Christ has risen, the stage has been set for a new creation in which Christ and Christ alone shall rule. And bring his people ultimate victory and peace. Until then, may we all, by the power of the Holy Spirit, abound in hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to speak to you this morning on the thought, the resurrection, a glimpse of God's future kingdom. The resurrection as a glimpse of God's future kingdom. In other words, you say, okay, Jesus is risen from the dead. What difference does that make? What consequence does that have for my life? That's that's what I want to speak to you about today. The resurrection as a glimpse of God's future kingdom. There's a movie that won a Golden Globe this year entitled Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. It is the story of a mother whose teenage daughter was brutally raped and murdered. And angry over the lack of progress in the investigation, the mother rents three billboards leading into the 
fictitious town of Ebbing, Missouri. And you'll see a picture. This is an actual still shot from the movie. The three billboards read, raped while dying. The second is a question, and still no arrests? And then a final question, how come, Chief Willoughby? Chief Willoughby is the chief of police in the fictitious town of Ebbing, Missouri. And when you read about the movie, it's clear that within the movie is a a portrayal of the very real human desire and human longing for justice. A mother's daughter has been brutally raped and murdered, and there's a wrong that's been perpetrated, a wrong that that they want to see righted. They want justice. And I think every one of us in this room can relate to a desire, a longing for justice. I mean, we're familiar with this. We, we see on television quite regularly marches for social justice. People get out in the streets and they're, they're working for, demanding social justice. Or they're crying out for equality. Or they're crying out for fairness. Things are unfair in this world. They're crying out longing for fairness. They're, they're calling for change and for reform. Singer Sam Smith released a song entitled Pray. And it's a song that as Sam sings it, he, he says, I'm not religious. I'm not even sure I believe in God, but I, I pray. And so in an interview, they, they asked him, they said, why did you write this song? What, what's this song about? Where did it come from? And he said, some friends and I were in a, another part of the world, and we were all looking around at what's happening in the world, and it's just messed up, he said. And I think every one of us can agree with this. There's something terribly wrong with our world. Now, you might be cruising along right now, and you think, look, everything's fine with me, but you can be sure that you're going to hit a pothole soon. You're going to hit the wall soon. There's something terribly wrong in this world. And we should realize that our desires, our longings, that we long for justice, we long for the rights or the wrongs to be righted, it reflects the very image of God. Our desires and our longings reflect the very image of God who is the source of all justice. Because we were created in the image of God. This is the declaration of the word of God. And that is why that we have these desires and longings for justice, fairness, equality, things to be made right. And so you would think, now you would think, that if we are indeed created in the image of God and these desires and longings reflect that fact, you would think that it would certainly be wise on our parts. It would be wise on our parts to look to our creator and to consider his plan for his future kingdom. And if you're here today and you say, you know, look, I'm still having some problems whether I believe all this or not, I would think that at the very least you would want the things that you're going to hear today, you would want them to at least be true. I mean, you at least want them to be true. So let's, let's explore for just a few minutes the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a glimpse of God's future kingdom. Put your finger with me on verse 20. I hope you have your Bibles open. You really need to see these words. You need to, you need to hear them. You need to see them. And let the Spirit of God speak to your heart this morning. In verse 20, look at it. Paul said, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, it's always good as you're studying the Bible and reading it, 
It's okay to ask questions. In fact, I recommend ask questions. When I read this, my first question is, why in the world is Paul having to say to the church, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead? Why does he have to, why does he have to reemphasize that to the church? I mean, for example, the church, the church is compiled of people who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for our sins and that he's been raised from the dead for our justification. Christian people believe these things. And, and the church is compiled of people who've answered the call of the gospel. So my question is, why in the world is Paul having to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead? Why is he saying this to the church? And the answer is, in the church at Corinth, there was a teaching circulating that there was no resurrection from the dead. Think about that for a moment. There were people in church. (laughs) They were assembling together in church, taking time out of their lives, their their pleasure-seeking lives, their work lives. They were taking time to come and gather and worship Jesus. But they were also saying, there's no resurrection from the dead, which meant that if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So understand what's going on here. Now, before we just blow by this, it is true that it's uncommon for someone to rise from the dead, right? I mean, I haven't observed that this week. Have you? It's uncommon. In fact, it's uncommon. It's supernatural. <laughs> it's just not common that someone rises from the dead. And, and today in the church, today in churches across America and across the world, there are many who have an aversion to the supernatural. And that is why there are some churches that say that Jesus did not really literally rise from the dead. They say it was figured. They say it's really foolish to believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead. We have to see it as a figurative move. That It just is, is symbolic of new life, of new beginnings and new starts. But then I have to ask another question. <laughs> it's okay to ask questions. I have to ask, then why did Jesus say he was going to rise from the dead? Uh, why, why did Jesus say that he was going to rise from the dead when there are some say, well, there's no resurrection of the dead. And it really wasn't literal, it was figurative. Why did Jesus then say he rose from the dead? Because in Matthew chapter 16, here's what we read. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus began to Tell his disciples, show his disciples, here's the plan. Here's what's going to happen. And I'm going to ultimately rise from the dead. So friends, this is not something made up by the church. This is not something made up by a bunch of kooks. Jesus said that he was going to rise from the dead. Now here's where we have a dilemma. C.S. Lewis and others before him put it this way. If Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead, but he did not, then he is either a liar or a lunatic. Uh, For example, if he said, I'm going to rise from the dead, but he knew he wasn't going to, then he lied. Or he thought, perhaps I will, but I didn't, and so that would make him a lunatic. He was delusional. And do you do understand that if that is the case, what are you doing here today? What are you doing here today? We don't have any need to be here if Jesus did not rise from the dead. 
But on the other hand, he did. Now, again, if he did not, we have a big problem. Let me explain it this way. See, because for the Christian, our faith is in Jesus and the things Jesus did. It's not just, I believe in Jesus. I'll, I'll talk to at least two dozen people a week who will tell me that they believe in Jesus. But do they believe in the things that Jesus did? Because if he did not do them, then the whole thing is useless and we need to go home right now and eat and drink and be merry and just die. But, as Paul said in verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and I believe that the biblical claims about his resurrection are persuasive and I urge you, if you have doubt, please read them. Please go home today and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Please do that. And so Christ has risen from the dead, and this means that there are implications, there's consequences to his resurrection. And that's what Paul goes on to explain after verse 20. He says Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, there's implications of that, and that's what we're going to unpack for just a moment. We're going to do it by asking some questions again. First, why are Adam and Jesus contrasted here in these verses? Fair question. You need, you need to look at this and go. I mean, the first question I have is, what in the world is Paul mentioning Adam in regards to Jesus' resurrection? Why? I mean, it seems out of place. I mean, why talk about Adam? And there's a good reason. There's a good reason. But we need to ask that question. Why are Adam and Jesus contrasted here in these verses? So that brings another question. What is Adam to world history? Why, why does Paul mention Adam? What does he have to do with world history? I want to unpack that for just a moment. Back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we read about creation. And the pinnacle of creation was mankind. With Adam as a son of God, created in the image of God, created after his likeness. Then we find in Genesis 1 and 2 kind of a structure of the kingdom of God. Really, go back and read it. Genesis 1 and 2, you kind of find a, a structure of the kingdom of God. What you find is Adam and Eve are dwelling with God in a place that he has prepared for them. They are submitting to his lordship and reflecting it in their dominion over all creation. You'll also find an abundance of trees in the garden. And God said, go at it. Go at it. Eat from all the trees except for one. You're forbidden to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now right there is what throws us off. We go, ah, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what's that all about? Well, God said, the day you eat of that tree, you will die. Now why? What? What's, what's this tree all about? What's really going on here? Well, the tree represents the fact that God alone has the authority to define what is right and what is wrong. You ever think about that much? You ever think about where did right and wrong come from? Who, who has the authority to define what is right and wrong? Well, we go back to creation and we find that God as the creator over his creation has the right, the authority to decide what is right and what is wrong. And therefore, by taking the fruit 
human beings were saying, no way. <laughs> no way. We're not accepting that God alone is God. We're going to take authority for ourselves. We're going to decide what is right and what is wrong. But that's what's going on in chapter 3 of Genesis. Beautiful creation, chapters 1 and 2, everything is very good. Chapter 3, the bottom falls out. Adam and Eve say, nope, nope, got not going along with this. Because Satan has come along and said, if you eat of this tree, you'll become as God. And he was simply saying this, you will set the rules. You'll set the rules, you'll be in charge, and you'll decide what is right and what is wrong. Now, let's just test this out for a moment. Got some parents here today, right, moms and dads? Okay, your, your 8-year-old, your 4-year-old, your 10-year-old comes up to you and says, oh, no, you're not in charge. No, I'm in charge. I'll be deciding who is setting the rules here. I will be deciding what's right and wrong for me, not you. Now, what do you have there? You have on your hands major disobedience and major rebellion, right? Now, let me just ask you, are you going to put up with that? <laughs> you're probably not, really. If you're a parent of any steel at all, you're not going to put up with that. You're going to say, hold on here, part." And see, this is what God had on his hands. As a parent, you ought to understand this. This is what God had on his hands. Major disobedience, major rebellion. And we find that this disobedience resulted in death. Look at verse 21 with me. That's what it means when it says, For as by a man came death. It's speaking of Adam, okay? I was watching a program the other night. I tell you, I want to recommend this program to you. It's on PBS. It comes back on Monday night at 9 o'clock. It's entitled, Into the Night, Portraits of Life and Death. And it's about two hours long. Look, it's not, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's, it's not a sitcom. You're not going to laugh. But I tell you what, it will sober you. Because the question is this. How do we live with the reality of death? If you watch this, there's a man on there. I think he's first. I think he's interviewed first. He's a man whose father had died some years ago as an atheist. And so he himself was an atheist. But he, but he, but he decided that after his father's death, see, it's one thing for death Kind of be abstract out there. It's other people dying. But when it's your dad, your mom, your brother, your sister, your spouse, it comes home, you see. And death had come home for him. And so here's what he said. He goes, I begin to look for a softer atheism. In other words, he was already kind of showing himself to say, look, as I face death, as I face this reality of death, in hard atheism, what do I look to? Where's my hope? What, what hope is there beyond this life? And so he said, I begin to look for a softer atheism. But then he said this and I almost fell in my chair. He said, we need stories. We need stories to help us. He said, we need stories to help comfort us. He referred to Christianity. He said, Christianity has stories that bring comfort. Other religions in the world have stories that bring comfort. He said, we need stories. And then he said this, we need stories, but they don't have to be true. They just need to bring comfort. The next day, I got online. I run it back. I want to make sure that I heard him right. He said, we need stories, but they don't have to be true. They just need to bring comfort. And so I thought, okay, let's just drag this out in the open and see how this works. Does it work everywhere? So I thought about this. Okay, you, your, child, your child is diagnosed with a threatening disease. 
And so naturally you take them to the doctor and you're willing to go wherever it takes. You go to Cleveland Clinic, you go to Cincinnati Children's, and they're running MRIs and they're running all kinds of battery of tests. And finally, after weeks and even months, you're in the uh, consultation room, the doctor walks in, big smile, file in hand, says, look, your child is just fine. Now, question, would it matter to you if the doctor's story was true or not? Would you, or would you just simply say, that brings comfort to me, don't need to know anything else. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not, just as long as I feel comforted. I don't think so. I think you want to know. Doc, open the file. Show me. I want to know, is this true? It's almost too good to be true. Is it true? Oh, we need stories. We need comfort. But we need True stories, not untrue stories. We need comfort, not false comfort, but real comfort. See, trying to fight the formidable foe of death with untrue stories would be like trying to fight a raging forest fire with a squirt gun. You're going to lose every time. And that is what we're up against in this world. Adam's sin has had a universal effect on all who have come after him. That's what verse 22 is saying. You see it? For as in Adam, all die. We all live with the reality of death. We all do. And friend, you know, for, for some of us, you know, we, when we were in our teens, we're like, yeah, okay, I hear that. But for some of you, so see, we've gotten older now. And we've grown up. And we've gotten married. And we've had a child. And now we're starting to think, hmm, I care about my baby. I care about my spouse. I care, I, I'm starting to care about other people. And so now, you know, the door is cracked open. And we're beginning to really look for, I'm looking for a story that's real. I'm looking for comfort that is real. Because we all live with the reality of death. And knowing this, listen, and knowing this helps Bring the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done into a sharp focus for us. So the first question we ask is, what does Adam have to do with world history? Simple answer, in Adam we all die. His disobedience, his rebellion has led to death for all. So now question, what is Jesus to God's future kingdom? See, where the first Adam disobeyed and brought death... The second Adam obeyed and brought life. You say, did I hear that right, second Adam? Yep, heard it right. Uh, in fact, when you go home and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you're going to find that Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam. And again, you ought to ask, what in the world? Well, the, what, what? The first Adam failed. The first Adam disobeyed. The first Adam rebelled. The first Adam brought about death. What we have in Jesus is the second Adam who obeyed perfectly and brought life for those who would look to him. That's what Romans chapter 5 says. Look at this. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. See, what we should see in verses 21 and 22, death was introduced by Adam, but death is conquered through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And then we're told that Jesus is the first fruits. Quick, quick survey. How many of you have heard, how many, how many of you used the word first fruits in conversation this week? Anybody? <laughs> I didn't think so. Twice though, twice here, Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits. Now, understand, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste words. Something's going on here, and it's beautiful. And Paul lifts this archaic, well, it wasn't archaic then, it is now, but this word, an Old Testament agricultural term, first fruits. We find it the first time in Leviticus chapter 23, and it was called the Feast of the First Fruits. Here's how it worked. People would bring their early harvest items to God. Now, some of you, you know, here, here in the spring now, you start growing your gardens. You're going to start bringing in all the harvest. Those first, those first pop-ups, that's first fruits. That's the first, first uh, early harvest. And so they were to bring their first fruits to God. Now, why? Why would they do this? In order to acknowledge God's ownership over them and his provision for them. In other words, it was just coming and saying, look, I'd be nothing without you. <laughs> I'd have nothing. I'd have no harvest without you. You are the source of all things. Blessings come from you above. And listen, it was also the first fruits were an indication of what was to come by God's blessing. First fruits. You walk out there and you snatch the first tomato off and second tomato, whatever, the first, first basket. You, 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 don't, you don't usually go in and go, oh, my goodness, that's the end of it. No more. No, no. It's an indication. First fruits are an indication. More to come. More to come. And so listen. Now listen. Let's put this together. Like the first fruits, we're being told here, Christ was the first to rise from the dead. He's the first fruits. He was the first to rise from the dead. And his resurrection became the pattern and the guarantee for future resurrections. Now listen, I'll just speak from a personal note. This means a great deal to me. I was, I was 15 when my mother passed away in Christ. Some years later, my dad passed away. Because Christ has risen, he's the first fruits of many to come. On that resurrection day, though my mother was buried in 1971, she's going to come up out of the grave in a new body like that of her Lord. These things mean something to me, and I believe they mean something to you. Christ is the first fruits. Praise God. This is a glimpse, a picture showing us here's what's coming, folks. You see, our, our, world, our world is looking for something. I, mean, I was reading the other day about an MIT professor. His name is uh, Max Tegmart. He's an MIT professor and the co-founder of the Future of Life Institute. Now, when you read that title, the Future of Life Institute, okay, you already kind of get an idea that he's, he's a guy. And, hey, look, I think, I think this is great. He's a guy that, like many other guys, they're looking for. They're saying, they're saying things like this. Man, we don't live long enough. We're not living long enough. We need to do something. And he said this. He said, we need, we need an upgrade. We need an upgrade. He, he's put it this way. Life 1.0 is our biological origins. Life 2.0, humanity develops culture and early technology. So we're, we're in what he would call uh, life 
you know, human 2.0. But he says we need life 3.0. And here's what it is. It's the merging of the human body with artificial intelligence with the potential for almost unimaginable power. He goes on to say, Yet despite the most powerful technologies we have today, all life forms we know of remain fundamentally limited by their biological hardware. None can live for a million years, memorize all Wikipedia, understand all known science, or enjoy space flight without spacecraft. None can transform our largely lifeless cosmos into a diverse biosphere that will flourish for billions and trillions of years, enabling our universe to finally fulfill its potential and wake up fully. All this requires life to undergo a final upgrade to life 3.0, which can design not only its software, but also its hardware. In other words, he says, life 3.0 is the master of its own destiny, finally fully free from its evolutionary shackles. Now, you can understand why a man who has built his philosophy of life on evolution would say this. He would say, we've got to save ourselves. We, we've, we've, got, we've got to do something. We need an upgrade. Friends, I think we'd all agree that we need an upgrade. Amen? But it will not come by man's ingenuity. It has come through Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Praise God. There is, friend, there is something that will blow life 3.0 off the charts. Because Jesus has risen from the dead. Let me, let me try to turn for home here. Look at verse 23 with me. I should, I should say verse 22. For as in Adam all die. That's terrible. That's a horrible reality. But look, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. By the way, that all be made alive, don't you sit here and think universalism. Don't you sit here and think, oh, yeah, well, in the end, all of us will, all of us will get in. Listen. The all be made alive is referring back to, verse 20, those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for death. For those who have already died in Christ. But the phrase made alive, you see that in verse 22? Shall be made alive. That speaks of a new creation. A new creation. See, this passage is telling us this new creation has already broken into our world through the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, we're here today. We're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. But somehow, somehow you may be sitting here and goes, I know I should be excited about this. I know I should be thrilled about this. But, you know, I just, it just, yeah, it's okay, yay, great, Jesus is risen. Listen, understand, Jesus' resurrection is a glimpse of God's future kingdom. It is, it is the reality, listen, of God's new creation breaking into our present world right now. I say it this way. What began at the resurrection will, according to verse 24, lead to God's future kingdom. Look at verse 24. Then comes the end. The end. Uh, listen, President Putin does not control the end. Kim Jong-un does not control the end. Donald Trump does not control the end. And we can say, thank God for all of those. They do not control the end. Who controls the end? The one who knows the beginning from the end. He controls the end. And notice it says in verse 24, then comes the end. There will be an end. Then comes the end 
when he, that's Jesus, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. There is coming an end when all the enemies of God and challengers to the lordship of Jesus Christ will be defeated. Friend, it is not a good plan. It is not a good plan to remain at war with God. You say, I ain't no war with God. Listen, if you have not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you are at war with God. And there is no future in being at war with God. Because according to God's word, his future kingdom has eradicated all of God's enemies and challengers to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for us as we get ready to leave here today? It means this. As Christians, now listen to me, all of you who are in Christ, as Christians, above all, in the meantime, until Christ's return, we should work for and labor for justice for the poor, for the oppressed, for the orphan, and for the widow. See, we can't just sit back and, well, okay, we'll just wait for the Jesus bus. No. No, as believers, we are to live for Jesus, which means we are to obey Jesus. We are to obey God's commands to go out and do good for the glory of God. So, so by all means, we as believers, because Christ is risen, we should be about the business of justice for the oppressed and the needy. But one day there will be no need for marches or billboards or protests. And you know why? Because the deepest, purest desires of ours will be fulfilled as we enjoy God forever in resurrected bodies in a new creation. All, all of these longings and desires that... I want this to be righted and this to be, this is not right. This is not fair. All of these things are a reflection of being created in the image of God who is the author of justice. Don't you see that God's handprint is on you? He made you to live for his glory. Don't fight that. Because today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus that gives us a glimpse of God's future kingdom. And that is why we pray, saints, that is why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we pray that. That's why Jesus instructed us to pray that. One final thing. Look at verse 23 and we'll close. But each in its own order, Christ the first fruits. notice this next phrase, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now listen to me. If you haven't listened very closely up until this point, please listen. I'll be done in just a moment. According to that phrase, those who belong to Christ, I can say this with full authority from God's word. Someone will determine your future. Someone will determine my future and your future. Now, you might say, nope, nope, I decide my own future. I'm the captain of myself. No, not according to these passages. Someone will determine your future. And here it comes. Here's the question, final question. Will Adam determine your future? 
or will Jesus Christ determine your future? There are no other options. It's not you determining your future. Either Adam, you are either in Adam, and in Adam all die. Eat, drink, be merry, go live it up. In Adam all die, but in Christ we live. And it's not just this earthly life, friend. It is eternal life. Someone will determine your future. Who will it be?